Well, hello, and you are so welcome to this study um, on the book of Revelation. Over the next four days, we're going to attempt to canter through the book of Revelation, doing a verse-by-verse -verse study. Uh, a bit of a tall order, but we'll have a go at it anyway. Um, needless to say, I won't be able to cover everything. Uh, what I'll give you probably is a broad brush look at what's going on. It may help you to understand the whole book and to enjoy it. And before I start, I want to give my thanks to um, the late Roger Price, who did a series of studies about unfulfilled prophecy. Um, Tim LaHaye, who wrote a book called Revelation Unveiled. Um, and Arnold Fruchtenbaum, a, Jew, a Jewish messianic believer, who wrote a book called In the Footsteps of the Messiah, which I would highly recommend. It's absolutely incredible stuff and he goes into all of this in great detail uh, and much better than I can so I'd recommend that you get those. So the purpose of every Bible study is to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ and this one above all glorifies him because in this book we are told it is the revelation or the unveiling of the Lord Jesus Christ which God gave him to tell his servants. So the book of Revelation or the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ is essentially a prophetic book. It looks towards the very end of time and it gives us a blow-by-blow -blow account of what's going to happen in the last seven years of the earth's history before the second advent of Jesus Christ the Messiah. This book is the culmination of Jewish history. It's also the culmination of the history of the nations of the world. Many, as we will see, will not believe, even though the judgments contained in the book are horrendous, as God pours out his righteous indignation on the unbelieving nations and the nation of Israel in particular. We must always keep in tension the fact that the Bible is a Jewish book. Jesus is a Jew and Israel is the centre of the world as far as God is concerned. Neither London nor New York has any clout as far as he's concerned. The whole book is about the history of one particular nation, Israel. If you keep that in mind, you'll see quite clearly where we as Gentiles fit in. We will include in our study some insights regarding the times of the Gentiles and what that means. But first of all, I want to lay down a few guidelines or rules of interpretation and cover one or two other points to assist our understanding of the book. So first of all, we want the rules for interpreting the Bible. These are general rules which can be applied to all scripture. They don't just apply to the book of Revelation, though we could find more rules if we weren't looking specifically at prophecy. And the first is the golden rule, and it's this. When the plain sense of scripture makes common sense, seek no other sense. Therefore, take every word at its primary, ordinary, usual, literal meaning 
unless the immediate context indicates clearly otherwise. Simply put, the plain law of reading scripture is that all passages are to be taken exactly as they read unless there's something in the text that indicates it should be taken other than literally. There will be figures of speech, but even these usually have a literal background. God intended that his word should be easily understood. The Bible does use symbols too, but these are usually explained if you read on. So this first rule is by far the most important. The Bible means what it says without allegory, allegory or making it all picture language. There are symbols in the book of Revelation, but we won't resort to guesswork. We'll look and see where they're mentioned elsewhere, either in a different part of the book or in some other part of the Bible. The Bible is invariably its own commentary, though we may have to dig a little deeper in some instances than others to establish what's been spoken about. All adds to the fun, really. The second rule is called the law of double reference. This law observes the fact that often a passage or block of scripture contains within it two different persons or two different time frames. In the passage itself they're blended into one picture and the time gap between the two persons or events is not presented by the text itself. The fact that a gap of time exists is, is known because of other scriptures or the first event having been fulfilled. A good example of this is some of the Old Testament prophecies regarding the first and second comings of the Messiah. Often these two events are blended into one picture with no indication that there's a time gap in between. Zechariah 9.9 is a good one. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Verse 9 is speaking of the first advent of Jesus, but verse 10 is speaking of the second coming. You'll remember that Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 21:2, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. In doing this, he fulfilled verse 9 of Zechariah 9. Verse 10 is yet to come. When he comes a second time, his dominion shall be from sea to sea and to the ends of the earth. It's not difficult, is it, when you break it down like that? Another easy example would be Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, which speaks of the first advent of the Lord Jesus. But halfway through it says, The acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. There's a 2,000 plus time gap here. 
because when Jesus came, the favour of the Lord was released and will continue until the day of vengeance, which is the tribulation. So if you like, in the comma, there is 2,000 plus years. Some of you may be familiar with the parallel passage in Luke 4:18 and 19, when Jesus stood in the temple and declared his mandate for the earth. He actually stopped halfway through verse 3 of Isaiah 61. Let's just look at this. Isaiah 61, 1 and 2 first. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. And then Luke 4, 18 and 19. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. So there we have two examples of the law of double reference, two things contained in the same verse with a time gap in between the first and second fulfilment of the verse. I don't want to confuse you, but there is another law called the law of double fulfilment, with which I do not personally agree. This says that the same passage can refer to two different time frames, near and far, and to two different people. For instance, that something could have been fulfilled in Isaiah's time and in our time as well. I don't agree with it because if the verse is prophetic there can only be one fulfilment of it. An example would be Isaiah 7.14 where Isaiah is having a conversation with Ahaz the king who has a galloping case of unbelief. He's been told not to fear because God's got everything in hand but he's still wobbly. And here we find a prophecy relating to the birth of Jesus. Isaiah 7 and verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. The near view would be that it would be a child born in Ahaz's day to Ahaz the far view that it was a messianic prophecy. Clearly in the light of history this was indeed a messianic prophecy. The child was born to a virgin. So for me the law of double fulfilment muddies the water, it's inaccurate and therefore I do not use it. You just need to be aware of these things. The third law then is the law of double reference. This is the law of repetition. In some passages, uh, maybe Genesis 1 and 2 are classics of this, I always liken it to newspaper headlines. We get the headline first and then the detail. The law of recurrence is just this. 
in Genesis 1, 1 to chapter 2, verse 3, we see the record of the seven days of creation in chronological order. And it ends with verse 3, with the seventh day. Then in Genesis 2, 4 to 25, we see the same thing all over again. It goes back to the sixth day to provide more detail about how Adam and Eve were created, etc. And this law is particularly seen in the book of Revelation, and it's a Hebrew way of writing. Headline news first, then infill detail. It's very simple. It's just the way you would read your newspaper. In Revelation chapters 6 to 16, the, the detail, the chronological sequence of the events of the tribulation period ending with the Battle of Armageddon and the Second Advent. Chapters 7 to eight, 17 to 18 follow the law of recurrence. They are infill detail. Chapter 17 gives us more detail about the half, first half of the tribulation and chapter 18 about the second half. So it's not rocket science. I'll just go through that quickly again in case you missed it. Revelation chapter 6 to 16 detail chronological sequences of the events in the tribulation period ending with the Battle of Armageddon and the Second Advent. Chapters 17 and 18 follow the law of recurrence there in field detail. Chapter 17 gives us more detail about the first half of the tribulation and chapter 18 about the second half, not rocket science. And the final law, number four, is a text out of context is a pretext. A verse can only mean what it means in its context. We must not take it out of context. When it's taken out of context, it's often presented as meaning something that it does not mean. This leads to people saying you can prove anything you want from the Bible. No, you can't. We must keep the verse firmly in the context of what is being said or we'll get into error. A classic of this is that you can lose your salvation. You cannot, and if you want to know exactly why, let us know and I've got an explanatory sheet on it. Again, it is because people take the text out of its textual context. So there we have the basic fundamental rules of biblical interpretation. As I said, there are more, but these are our foundational boundary lines within which we will stay. Another thing we need to look at before we start our study is the word dispensation. It sounds boring, but it is really very important. What are dispensations? Well, briefly, a dispensation is a period of divine ordering or management of affairs and events in the world. A dispensation is a God-ordained time period relating to a certain people group. It's a fixed period of time. For instance, the dispensation of the church started on the day of Pentecost. Israel's last chance to believe before the Lord turned to the Gentiles and it will end with the catching away or the rapture of the church 
You'll remember at the end of the book of Acts, Paul said in Acts 28, 28, speaking to the Jews now, Therefore, let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles and they will hear it. The dispensation of Israel started with Abraham and will end with the second coming of Jesus to his people, the Jews, in Jerusalem. As we will see, we're looking at two distinct people groups here, Israel and the church. For a more comprehensive study of these issues, you need to get the paper or the CDs entitled The Truth About Israel, which was part of the first of our study on the book of Revelation, together with the details about will the church go through the tribulation, which was also part of that study. So now let's look at two people, two destinies, Israel and the church. When we're looking at end time prophecy, we're looking at two distinct people groups, Israel and the church. Israel is the wife of Jehovah and the church is the bride of Christ. If we do not separate correctly the destinies of these two, we will find ourselves muddled and confused about what the Bible is actually saying and will apply scriptures which are meant for Israel to the church and vice versa, which leads to error regarding God's purposes for the nation of Israel as well as us, the church. The Old Testament never spoke of the church. It was a mystery hidden until Jesus revealed his intentions to Peter in Matthew 16 verse 18. On this rock of truth I will build my church. Peter here receives the revelation that Jesus is indeed the long-awaited Messiah and on this rock of revelation Jesus will build something called his church. This was all Greek to Peter at the time, he'd never heard about this before and you'll remember he had to be put into a trance-like state to recognise that God was now including people and things he considered to be unclean in his kingdom rule bit of a shock no doubt some slight mindset change needed there you'll find the passage in Acts 10 verse 13 if we're to comprehend what's happening with the catching away or the rapture of the church we need to understand the position of Israel in God's purposes Israel is the wife of Jehovah in the Old Testament, God consistently referred to Israel as being married to him in covenantal relationship. When they worshipped other gods, he called this adultery. The Old Testament prophets always viewed this covenant relationship as a marriage contract, but adultery was committed. Israel's marriage contract or covenant is actually the whole book of Deuteronomy. It's the format both of an ancient treaty and an ancient marriage contract. Reading from Deuteronomy 5, 1-3 And Moses called all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and judgments which I speak in your hearing today, that you may learn them and be careful to observe them. 
The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. The Lord did not make this covenant with our fathers, but with us, those who are here today, all of us who are alive. The Lord talked with you face to face on the mountain from the midst of the fire. I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord, for you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up the mountain. He goes on then to detail the commandments of the covenant. This passage declares God entered into a covenant with his people at Mount Sinai. Later, Jeremiah has the unenviable task of calling the wayward wife back to her husband. And in Jeremiah 3, 1-5, we see him saying, If they say, if a, if a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's, may he return to her again? Would not that land be greatly polluted? But you have played the harlot with many lovers. Yet return to me, says the Lord. Lift up your eyes to the desolate heights and see, where have you not lain with men? By the road you've sat for them like an Arabian in the wilderness, and you've polluted the land with your harlotries and your wickedness. Therefore the showers have been withheld, and there has been no latter rain. You've had a harlot's forehead. You refuse to be ashamed. Will you not from this time to cry to me, my father, you are the guide of my youth? Will he remain angry forever? Will he keep it to the end? Behold, you have spoken and done evil things as you were able. And poignantly in verse 20, Surely as a wife treacherously departs from her husband, so have you dealt treacherously with me, O house of Israel, says the Lord. Because of this consistent adultery, God's heart was broken, and the original marriage contract was annulled. Jeremiah shows that the problem was not with the husband, but with the wife, who persisted in going after other gods, and so became guilty of the great adultery. Then comes the divorce, and finally the chosen people, under the fifth cycle of discipline, are carried away into captivity from their own land. And when Jesus comes, they re reject their Messiah and are dispersed into all nations. For a fuller understanding of the way God dealt with Israel and her apostasy, you need to either read or listen to the teaching on the five cycles of discipline. As a result of the rejection of their Messiah, Israel's history is on hold during the dispensation of the church. Though some Jewish people are born again and become part of the church, the major evangelistic thrust will be after the church has been bodily removed, when they will recognise their Messiah. So there is yet a seven-year period of their history which remains and this is known as the time of great tribulation or the time of Jacob's trouble or Daniel's 70th week. Jeremiah 30 verse 5 says this This is what the Sovereign Lord says 
Cries of fear are heard, terror, not peace. Ask and see, can a man bear children? Then why do I see every strong man with his hands on his stomach like a woman in labour, every face turned deathly pale? And verse 7. How awful that day will be. None will be like it. It will be a time of trouble for Jacob. But he will be saved out of it. This then is the scripture which foreshadows the time of the end and the time of great trouble for Israel. But they will be saved out of it by the second coming of Jesus. Now the church, his bride, and she is yet in the betrothal stage and she is radically different to Israel. 2 Corinthians 11.2 says this For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy for I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. We're espoused and being prepared. This is why stuff has to be dealt with and go out of our lives. We're being prepared and adorned for our marriage called sanctification. Unlike Israel when the union comes between Christ and the church the church will be presented as a pure virgin. What's the process? Ephesians 5 25-27 tells us Husbands love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having a spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Continual washing of the water of the word. Beloved, we can't neglect the word. It's our mirror. So having seen that the tribulation is the time of Jacob's trouble, is there any other reason why we should be so certain that the great tribulation period isn't for us? And here we need to look at how God deals with the righteous and the unrighteous when he brings judgment. Does he actually lump us all together and say, well, you're part of this and so you have to go through judgment? God is a God of principles. And the principle is, there is always grace before judgment. God never sends judgment or discipline of any kind without first giving grace. And that grace is in the form of increasingly severe warnings to the people concerned. Another principle is that he never judges believers and unbelievers together, the righteous and the wicked. That's one of the reasons why I absolutely know that we as believers will be removed before the end time judgment of this earth begins. God's character is at stake in all of this. Does he change? No, of course he doesn't. He's immutable. 
Jesus took our judgment on the cross. There is henceforth no condemnation or judgment for us. We are in him. That aside, let's look at what happened in the past. On two occasions in Genesis, God removed the righteous before he brought judgment on the wicked. There was the universal flood and righteous Noah, and Noah and his family are removed before judgment comes. And then Sodom and Gomorrah and righteous Lot and his wife and his daughters are led away by angels before judgment comes. We would appear to have established a principle that God removes the righteous, separates them from the unrighteous before he brings judgment. So whether you're mature or not, getting it right or whatever that may be or not, you are made righteous by the blood of Jesus. You are not made righteous by anything but his precious blood. So that makes you a candidate for being removed before universal judgment of the earth takes place for the second time. Having looked at the Old Testament principle, let's look at some New Testament scriptures and see what we find. Is there consistency? We need to see that God is exactly the same in his dealings with mankind in the New Testament as he was in the Old. Let's look at what Jesus said in Matthew 25. And here I'm going to Matthew 25, 31 to 33, and verse 46. This is the second advent at the end of the tribulation and Jesus is talking to the Jews. Very familiar passage. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand but the goats on the left. And verse 46 And these will go away into everlasting punishment but the righteous into eternal life. So at the end of the age you'll do exactly the same thing again. The unrighteous will be on his left hand side and the believers or the righteous on his right. And the next thing Messiah will do will be to remove all the unbelievers from the earth and leave only believers on it to go into the millennial kingdom and repopulate the earth. The point is there's always a separation going on before the final judgment at the great white throne begins. We'll talk a bit more about the throne later. So we now have a New Testament principle and we've established that God is exactly the same in the New Testament as in the Old, which does away with the God is a God of wrath in the Old Testament and a God of love in the New belief system. No way. He never changes. What has happened is that we do not understand his ways with mankind. So, moving on, 
what I hope to cover over the next three days um, and there are some things here that will be not that haven't been covered before in the last course because the Lord's led me to do specific topics in the last course so in this course we're endeavoring to work our way through the book picking up chronologically on the things we didn't address before so we will be looking at things like the times of the Gentiles what exactly is this the seven churches in a little more detail Daniel's beast the woman clothed with the sun mystery Babylon the difference between the battles of Gog and Magog and Armageddon the great white throne judgment versus the judgment seat of believers the millennium and what we will be doing and if we get that far the eternal state we cannot study the book of Revelation without drawing in many other portions of scripture what we find in Revelation is nothing new until we get to the last two chapters Revelation has no direct quotations from the Old Testament but it has over 500 references back to the Old Testament the majority of the things found in the first 20 chapters are found in the Old Testament what happens in Revelation is that these references are brought together Revelation brings the Old Testament prophecies and puts them in some sort of order for us so we can see what the sequence of events is likely to be it therefore helps us a great deal when studying the Old Testament because we can pinpoint where things mentioned there fit in after this course you'll probably find you understand a lot more of the Old Testament than you do right now when it comes to describing the eternal state however this is all completely new to us because the prophets of the Old Testament didn't see beyond the messianic reign of Jesus the millennium to the eternal state they didn't see the eternal state so the eternal state mentioned right at the end of the book is the high point of New Testament prophecy and Revelation 21 and 22 provide new information as they describe what's to come brilliant we're in for a feast firstly then what we'll do is an overview of the Bible many non-Christians are fearful about the future and so are many Christians the way to overcome this is to know what the Bible says about tomorrow God has a timetable for this earth and most people aren't aware of it so I'm going to take an overview of world history up to and including now and fast forward it to the end so that we might see that what we have in the world today and also what we can expect to happen according to the scriptures so this is just a broad brush overview giving you the relevant scriptures I won't fill in any detail this is the first press as they call it if I gave you too much information about the subject at this point it would just overwhelm you we're looking now at God's overall plan from Genesis to Revelation which is to have a people for himself world history in the Bible is split into three 
Genesis 1 to 11, this is chapters now, deals with the 2,000 years of history of mankind. The remainder of the Old Testament covers the next 2,000 years up to the time of Jesus. And then we have the church age which we are in now. In Genesis 1 to 11 we have all we need to know about the world's history. It isn't all but it's enough. I'm picking up now on Genesis 10, 6 to 12 and we see this. The sons of Ham were Cush, Mizraim, Put and Canaan. The sons of Cush were Seba, Havilah, Sabtah, Rama and Sabtakak. And the sons of Rama were Sheba and Dedan. Cush begot Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, Kalne, in the land of Shinar. From that land he went to Assyria and built Nineveh, Reboth, Ur, Kala and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala, that is the principal city. So here we see the lineage of the grandchildren of Noah and we find someone called Nimrod. The name Nimrod means rebellion. And any of you who know me know that I've been looking at the background to Christmas and of course, needless to say, it starts with him. Because it means rebellion, he decides he's going to be king of the earth and not God. So in verse 10, in the passage we just looked at, he begins to build his kingdom by building a city in the land of Shinar or Babylon. In the Old Testament you'll also find it referred to as Chaldea or the land of the Chaldees where Abram lived in a place called Ur. Now if we fast forward to the end of the book, Revelation 17.5, we find something called Mystery Babylon, the mother of harlots and the downfall of this system. So we see Babylon from Genesis to Revelation. It's important that we understand the beginnings of this system because at the very end of the age it will surface again with great power. Genesis 11.1 1 and the Tower of Babel. Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. At this time, these people have one language and one speech, and this is very important. What it means is that they were of one mind and one thought. They were in agreement. God actually says nothing will stop them if I don't call a halt at this point. So in Genesis 11, 5 and 6, we find this. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that men were building. The Lord said, If as one people, speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. God had told them to scatter and repopulate the earth, but they had said, No, sir, 
we're sticking together. So God comes down and says, I will scatter you. So he changed their languages. God interrupts man's plans and scatters them because things were happening far too fast. God has a timetable and it doesn't include their plans. From this we see a stream of rebellion which began at the Tower of Babel. Roger Price describes it like this on his tape on the Tower of Babel. A little stream which began here at the Tower of Babel and went downhill as it went. It gained more and more water and in our day it is like a mighty river. But it is absolutely nothing like it is going to be in the days to come. It will be like a tsunami at the end of the age. The wickedness, the absolute and utter evil that is going to come upon the earth. Today this river is largely hidden. It is an attempt by mankind to be totally independent from God. This you will remember is what Satan actually tempted Eve with. The right to self-rule or independence from God. At the end of the age it covers every area politically, commercially and religiously. It is this system that is called in Revelation 17.5 Mystery Babylon. A mystery in the Bible, remember, means something that is hidden and then suddenly unveiled. So you could say this is hidden Babylon. What began at the Tower of Babel man trying to get together for political, economic and religious union, one big nation, will culminate at the end of the age, where again the determination for self-rule will explode into a global ruler, a global economic system and a global religion. Man will have his way for a short time, three and a half years to be precise, the second half of the Great Tribulation as we will see. So going back to Genesis, into the midst of this comes the Lord Jesus himself, as he does, and he scatters the people of Babylon by mixing up their languages. And at the end of Genesis 11, verse 26 onwards, we call him, we see him calling one man from the Babylonian system who would father his beloved people, the man from whom the nation of Israel would come. This nation was going to be God's missionary base to the world, and most of the Old Testament from then on deals with the call of Abraham and the setting apart of the nation who God chose to be his very own. The rest of the Old Testament then is the history of this nation, and in Matthew 10, 5-7, we see Jesus sending out his twelve disciples with a specific command. And here it is. These twelve Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter a city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
Jesus, having come as the long-awaited king of the nation of Israel, sends his disciples to the lost sheep of Israel. He is rejected by them. And as a result of this, and according to God's eternal plan, he raises up a new people for himself and begins to speak about something he calls the church. As I said before, on the day of Pentecost the church is born, and today we are God's missionary base for preaching the gospel to the world. So now on the earth we have three major people groups. The church, the unbelievers, and the nation of Israel. The church is made up of Jew and Gentile. God still has a future for Israel and he's most definitely not finished with them yet. Daniel's 70th week has yet to come to be fulfilled. So now we're up to date and we need to see what is to come and there's a scripture which will show us what's the next thing on God's timetable for the Jewish nation. Jesus here speaking to his disciples about the sequence of events to come in response to their question. And the very first thing he does is that he predicts the destruction of their temple. Matthew 24 verse 1 then Jesus went out and departed from the temple and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple and Jesus said to them do you not see all these things or don't look at this colloquially assuredly I say to you not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down now as he sat on the Mount of Olives the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them and said, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumours of wars. See that you are not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. Remember, he is speaking here to the Jews, telling them what to look for. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famine, pestilence, and earthquakes in various places. These are the beginnings of sorrows. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. And then the end will come. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place whoever reads let him understand then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house and let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes 
But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation, such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time no, nor shall ever be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved, but for the elect's sake those days will be shortened. Then if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you beforehand. Therefore, if they say to you, Look, he's in the desert, do not go out, or look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Verse 29 Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. As we study the events of the book of Revelation, we will see these sequential or chronological prophecies unfold before our eyes. But Jesus here is speaking to his disciples in the Olivet Discourse, and he tells them first about the destruction of their temple, which took place in AD 70, by which time all but John had probably died. And then he goes on to outline events right up until his second coming and ends by saying, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the Son of Man will appear. What's the tribulation of those days? Trouble is what tribulation means. Verse 21 shows us that this is a period of trouble, the like of which the world has never seen, described here as great tribulation as opposed to the tribulation of everyday life. Verse 29 shows us what's coming. Verse 30, after the tribulation of that time, we have the second advent of Jesus. Jesus comes back to the earth as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and this is what follows the troublous times. Matthew 25, 31-33 and verse 46. We've looked at it before. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory, and all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats, and he'll set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. And verse 46 and these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. This is the second advent, 
and before that there is the uh, after at the second advent there is the battle of armageddon then judgment then king jesus separates the believers from the unbelievers and the unbelievers are removed from the earth to await the great white throne judgment which is mentioned in verse 46 After this separation of sheep and goats, righteous and unrighteous, the kingdom is set up on the earth for a thousand years, the millennium. Believers start living on the renewed earth and children are born to them and the earth is repopulated. So we have the kingdom on earth for a thousand years and during this time Satan is locked up. At the end of thousand year reign Satan is released for a short time and at the end of history you see the apostasy of the nations. Satan is let loose and the majority of the nations will follow him and we have the last great battle the Gog and Magog rebellion right at the end. What we're going to see as we study the book of Revelation is the consummation of the ages which is coming on us fast. All we're ever told to do as believers is to watch, wait and look up, for our redemption draws near. So in studying this book our eyes are turned heavenward to look for the King of Glory, who will shortly return to catch away his bride in order that she may be with him eternally. That's a general sweep of history rebellion of mankind against God which started in Genesis is there right to the end of the book of Revelation and the final judgment. Let's just now look at this uh, sorry about that let's just now look at the uh, phrase the times of the Gentiles Having set the scene with that overview, what does the Bible mean when it speaks of the times of the Gentiles? And the scripture reference we want for this is Luke 21 verse 24. And they shall fall by the edge of the sword, and shall be led away captive into all the nations, and Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles, until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Surprisingly, the times of the Gentiles do not refer just to the church age, but to the time period from the destruction of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar's Babylonian Empire and the carrying away to captivity right through to the second coming of Jesus Christ, during which the Gentile nations have had dominance over Jerusalem by way of occupation. In saying this, I'm not ruling out temporary Jewish control of the city, but all such Jewish control will only be temporary until the second coming. Even though the Jews are currently back in the land, their control is only partial of the city and Jerusalem itself. This time of the Gentile rule will only end as Jesus' feet ascends the Mount of Olives. At that time, Gentile rule will be well and truly over. There will be no gradual phasing out. It is a sudden and complete end. Now 
for something different I want to introduce you to four empires which will feature highly in our study and these are the Babylonian Empire under Nebuchadnezzar the Medo-Persian Empire under Darius the Mede and Cyrus the Greek or Hellenistic Empire beginning with Alexander the Great and the fourth empire which was and is to come again and we'll look at this in more detail when we study Nebuchadnezzar's dream in the book of Daniel all of those that I've just spoken about are Gentile empires the times of the Gentiles is a fascinating study on its own but it's sufficient for us now to know that the times of the Gentiles is that extended period of time from the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem you'll remember that was because of the adultery of the people of Israel that they could not stick to worshipping the Lord they went off after other gods and finally in the fifth cycle of discipline their city was destroyed and they were carried away into captivity so it's that long period of time from the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem until Jesus return at the second coming when he will set up the messianic kingdom and reign and rule in Jerusalem for a thousand years so now let's break it down a little and that which you've been waiting for all this time we'll get into the book of Revelation so open your Bibles please Revelation 1 verses 1 to 3 The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show unto his servants, even the things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bore witness of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ, even of all things that he saw. Blessed is he that reads, and they that hear the words of that prophecy and keep the things which are written therein for the time is at hand so here we have right at the beginning of the book the angelic presence if you came into the teaching uh, in October about angels you'll know all about how many times they appear in the scriptures and we'll see an awful lot of them uh, during our time in Revelation angels were frequently used in the revelation of prophecy so it's not unusual to find them involved in revealing events in this book they'll play a prominent role in not only revealing prophecy to John but also in carrying out the judgments as they did in the Old Testament as we will see just to clear up one point the phrase even things which must shortly come to pass has been somewhat misunderstood what is being said here in using the word shortly is not that the prophecies were to be fulfilled soon after they were given but that once they do start once the day of fulfillment comes there will then be no delay and things will unfold quickly and in this order there's a wonderful promise in verse 3 that anyone reading, hearing and studying this book will be blessed. 
Blessed is he that reads and they that hear. There's a unique blessing, therefore, for reading and studying this book. The believers who love his appearing too are promised a special crown. There's also a blessing to those who keep the things that are written therein. The word keep also means to watch. The believer, therefore, who after reading and listening to what the book is teaching should also be watching for these things to come to pass and be on the alert for the fulfilment of the prophecies. So Revelation 1 now, verses 4 to 8. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits that are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Unto him that loves us, and loosed us from our sins by his blood, and he made us to be a kingdom of priests unto his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion for ever and ever. Amen. Behold, he comes with the clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they that pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth shall mourn over him. Even so, Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. There are a few interesting little bits here. Firstly, verse 4 tells us to whom the book is being written, and that is the seven churches that are in Asia. Much has been written about who is meant by these seven churches. John uses the definite article, the, and Arnold Fruchtenbaum, in his book that I've already mentioned, The Footsteps of the Messiah, makes the point that in using the Greek definite article, John is indicating totality. In other words, seven is the number of completion or perfection. Throughout the scriptures, the number seven signifies completeness, and the point here being there's that there is a message to the whole church. When John speaks to the seven churches of Asia, he is signifying that all believers are to learn from what will be written to the seven churches of Asia. Incidentally, just keep an eye open for the number of times the number seven is mentioned in this book. It is the number of totality and it crops up time after time. It signifies this is the end, folks. Man's rebellion is totally complete and judgment has come. Three people are mentioned here in these first couple of verses. From him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits that are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. The originator was God the Father in verse 1 and here described as the one who is and who was and who is to come. Mentioned next is the Holy Spirit described as the seven spirits that are before his throne and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness, the triune God. John turns from this to glorify Jesus 
who loves us and loosed us from our sins by his blood, and he made us to be a kingdom, to be priests unto his God and Father. To him be the glory and dominion for ever and ever. Amen. He loosed us, made us a kingdom, and priests to God the Father. Glory to his name, John says. Then in verse 7 he gives the theme of the book, Who is, and who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Thus the main theme of the book is the second coming of the Messiah. The return of the Lord Jesus Christ to this earth is the central theme of this book. In verse 8 Jesus describes himself as the Eternal One, encompassing the beginning and the end. He is the overall sovereign God who alone is in control of history and will bring to pass the events described in the Revelation. What John saw was the glorified Son of Man, our man in glory. Revelation 9, sorry, Revelation 1, 9 to 11. I, John, your brother, and partaker with you in the tribulation and kingdom and patience which are in Jesus, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet saying, What you see, write in a book, and send it to the seven churches, and to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. Clearing up a little misunderstanding here about what John meant when he said he was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, because we are Gentile believers and Sunday is our day of worship, it's often been represented as though John got this vision on a Sunday. It doesn't matter very much, but that is not what the text is saying. It's actually saying, I was under the control of the Holy Spirit in such a way that I lost myself. The Greek term translated Lord is not a noun but an adjective. It's describing how he felt. It was a day in which the Lord John was enraptured by prophetic and divine ecstasy and received a divine revelation. It was a day in which he fell under the control of the Holy Spirit to such an extent he was carried away in the Spirit like many prophets before him. For him it was lit more literally a Lordy day where he saw things and was commissioned to write what he saw to the seven churches. John was exiled to Patmos by the Roman Emperor Domitian. He was about 96 years old at the time he sees this vision. Here's John then, lifted in the spirit on this day to receive divine revelation. And we look now to Revelation 1, verses 12 to 20. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. I love the King James in this, girt about the paps, it says. His head and his hair were white 
like wool, white as snow, and his eyes like flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive for evermore. Amen. I have the keys of death and Hades. Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. John hears a voice. He sees the candlesticks. Then he sees Jesus. A Jesus he has never seen before the glorified Son of Man, and he falls at his feet as dead. This is King Jesus. This is a Jesus we have never yet seen, our glorious coming King. What follows is John's description of what he saw, and notice that he uses the word like all the time. He's never seen anything like this, and like the prophets before him, he has to use a likeness in order that we will understand something of the glory that he beheld. You see this frequently in Ezekiel when he tried to describe what he saw in the throne room. So John sees Jesus, prophet, priest, king. He functioned as prophet when he first came. He functions as High Priest now, our Great High Priest. Hebrews 5 verse 6, 7 verse 17 and 21, and 8 verse 1. And he will come as undisputed King. The primary purpose of the book of Revelation is to reveal King Jesus. It is the revelation of him in all his glorious majesty, supremacy and might. A king has many roles. One is to judge. And he will judge the world at his second coming. So a secondary theme of this book is judgment. After the revelation of Jesus, Jesus, the whole book deals with one judgment of God upon mankind after another. 